0: This is Pizzicato Ost and I am Leo Jevetsky. Today's episode is dedicated to one of the most well-known pieces of music by the most well-known composer. A piece that has been described as unplayable, created a bit over 2 centuries ago. It is Beethoven's Große Sonate für Hammerklavier in B-flat major, Opus 106. We usually call it the Hamaklavia Sonata, or the Sonata Number no. 29. By the way, for me, when I began my interest in classical music, it was quite difficult to get through these complicated naming and numbering systems for music pieces. Um, if you guys are also confused and would like um, an in-depth dive into this issue, um, with maybe a special episode dedicated to it, then uh, let me know. You can contact us on Instagram, that's pizzicatoost in one word, or send us an email to pizzicatoost at gmail.com. So let's see what surrounded the creation of the Hamaklavia Sonata in the life of the composer and in general context. The Sonata was finished in 1818, Beethoven, born in 1770, is 48 years old at the time. The other classics, representatives of the so-called First Viennese School, are long dead, Mozart since 1791, and Haydn since 1809. The classical era in music is reaching its end, replaced by the early Romantic era. Of course, these are terms introduced much later in history, but it gives us an idea of the time. So, by 1818, Paganini has released his famous 24 Caprices for solo violin. Weber is first director of the opera in Prague, then in Berlin, and finally director of the prestigious opera in Dresden, working hard to... um, establish a German opera in reaction to the Italian opera, which had dominated in the European music scene ever since the 18th century. Rossini is becoming the composer of the day, conquering Naples and Rome, and has already premiered his Barber of Seville in 1816. Finally, Schubert, 21 years old in 1818, is already author of a substantial amount of works, including chamber instrumental pieces, songs, masses, and symphonies. The year 1818 also marks the first public appearance of the nine-year-old pianist Felix Mendelssohn in Berlin. In a completely different context, on May 5th in Trier, Prussia, Karl Marx was born. The World as Will and Representation, a central work of the German philosopher Otto Schopenhauer, is published this same year. But now, back to music, let us listen to a piece by Schubert from the time, composed in March 1817 to be precise, namely the second movement of his A minor piano sonata, Deutsch 537. This was the second movement of Schubert's Piano Sonata in A minor, Deutsch 537, played by Arturo Benedetti Michelangeli. By the way, um, if you remember the 1985 James Ivory movie um, A Room with a View, the young Helena Bonham Carter is practicing this very piece on the piano. Now, by 1818, Beethoven's musical legacy already includes eight of his nine symphonies, the violin, the five piano, and the triple concerto, over a dozen overtures, including Coriolan and Egmont, 11 of his 16 string quartets, his only opera, Fidelio, and so on. So now let's play the great and ever-so-popular Egmont overture. This was Beethoven's Egmont overture, played by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra under Georg Scholti in 1976. What music scholars call Beethoven's late period began in the 1810s. Beethoven goes into a renewed study of older music, including works by Bach and Handel. Um, that were then being published in the first attempts of complete editions. Now, many of Beethoven's late works include fugal material, which is very typical for the works of these Baroque-era composers. Works from this period are characterized by their intellectual depth and their intense, highly personal expression. Beethoven introduces formal innovations. The 14th String Quartet in C-sharp major, Opus 131, has seven linked movements, and the Ninth Symphony adds choral forces to the orchestra in the last movement. This is highly untypical and quite new for the time. In the life of Beethoven himself, between 1815 and 1819, his musical output drops severely compared to previous years. This has partially to do with a lengthy illness, he called it an inflammatory fever, that he had for more than a year starting in October 1816. Another issue of this period is the ongoing legal problems concerning his nephew Karl, son of his brother Kaspar, who died in 1815. Beethoven got into a fight for custody over the nine-year-old Karl with the boy's mother. And these legal procedures were taking time, five years of time actually, effort and money. And the poor boy was being constantly thrown from one home to the other. Then there was the issue of romanticism that was making a rise in Europe And of Beethoven finding himself increasingly resisting the impending romantic fragmentation of the cyclic forms of the classical era. Um, This was breaking them into small form and lyric mood pieces. We've talked about this in our episode about Liszt's Mazeppa, so I'm not going to go into details again here, and uh, you can listen to to that in in the other episode. During these years, apart from our Hammerklavier sonata, the very few major works that Beethoven completed include his cycle Andiferne Geliebte, To the Distant Beloved, Opus 98, this was in 1816. And while Schubert's cycles are more elaborate and complex, Beethoven's cycle actually introduces the genre of the song cycle into classical repertoire. Let's hear one song from this cycle performed by Matthias Gurne. i This was the second song from Beethoven's cycle An die ferne geliebte, "Wo die Berge so blau, performed by baritone Matthias Goerne with Jan Lisicki on the piano on a very fresh recording from 2020. In 1818, Beethoven also starts making musical sketches that were eventually to form his final Ninth Symphony, but this will come later. Now, another issue that is important to mention, even though so much has been said on the matter, is Beethoven's hearing condition. Beethoven is quoted to have noticed hearing loss ever since 1798. Added to this was a severe form of tinnitus. He was describing his symptoms and the difficulty that they caused in both professional and social setting as rather disturbing. In 1802, Beethoven moved to Heiligenstadt, which is currently in the 19th district of Vienna. He moved there in an attempt to come to terms with his hearing condition. There he wrote the document now known as the Heiligenstadt Testament. It is a letter to his brothers which records his thoughts of suicide due to his growing deafness and records his resolution to continue living for and through his art. The letter was never sent and was discovered in his papers after his death and is now kept at the University Library of Hamburg. Other letters of Beethoven of the time were not so despairing. In them, he comments also on his ongoing professional and financial success at this period, and his determination, as he expressed it, to seize fate by the throat. It shall certainly not crush me completely. In 1806, Beethoven notes on one of his musical sketches, Let your deafness no longer be a secret, even in art. Beethoven's hearing loss did not prevent him from composing music, but it made playing at concerts, which was an important source of income at this phase of his life, increasingly difficult. It also contributed substantially to his social withdrawal. It seems, however, that Beethoven could still hear speech and music more or less normally until 1812. So, Beethoven had significant tinnitus, reduced word recognition, and by his own writings, reduced sensitivity to high-frequency sounds. At 46, in 1816, he was completely deaf. In fact, some at the time speculated that One reason for his brilliant compositions was that he didn't hear, and this enabled him to construct symphonies without the distraction of hearing other composers' work. In his later years, when the deafness affected his ability to compose properly, Beethoven sawed off the legs of his piano and used the floor as a sounding board. Lying with his ear to the wooden floor and hitting the piano notes at various volumes to see if the volume fitted with the music, he could hear in his head. So, in the time when our Hamaklavia Sonata occurs, Beethoven's hearing had severely deteriorated, making Beethoven and his interlocutors writing in notebooks to carry out conversations. These conversation books are an immense written resource from the composer's late period. They contain discussions about music, about business, about personal life. They're also a valuable source for his contacts and for investigations into how he intended his music to be performed and of his opinions of the art of music. Now, when we've set the sets and have a bit of an idea of the circumstances we can start talking about the actual piece i remind you this is ludwig van beethoven's piano sonata number 29 große sonate für das hammerklavier in b flat major opus 106 the work was written between 1817 and 1818 and as some 13 other works of beethoven's was dedicated to his patron, pupil, and friend, the Archduke Rudolf of Austria. Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number no. 26, titled Les Adieux, The Farewells, was gifted to Rudolf just before his flight from Vienna with the royal family on the occasion of the invasion by Napoleon in 1809. The movements are Leb wohl," Abwesenheit, and Wiedersehen. Farewell, absence, and reunion. Let us hear a part of this sonata. As you could have assumed from the music, this was the final movement, the reunion from Beethoven's 26th sonata, Les Adieu, dedicated to the Archduke Rudolf, from a recording of Wilhelm Kempf from 1965. But now, back with the 29th sonata and its title, Hammerklavier. So, Hammerklavier has nothing to do with pounding at the keyboard. This title is simply the German, well, the German word of that time for the pianoforte. In other words, the composer was simply specifying that this work absolutely had to be played on the modern keyboard with hammered strings and that the old plucked string harpsichord was not an option. In fact, Beethoven's last five piano sonatas all had this specific designation, but it became the nickname only for our specific sonata, Opus 106. Most of the work was created in spring and summer of 1818 in Mödling, near Vienna, where Beethoven was using an instrument made by the English piano builder Broadwood. In December 1817, Broadwood shipped the instrument from London. It arrived in Vienna seven months later, slightly damaged after a journey overseas to Trieste and then cart into Vienna. Beethoven kept the instrument until his death in 1827, and it was then sold to a music publisher named Anton Spina. In 1845... Eighteen years after Beethoven's death, Spina gave the instrument to Ferenc Liszt, who kept it in his home in Weimar until he donated it to the Hungarian National Museum in 1874. In 1991, Beethoven's Broadwood was restored to playable condition and is still kept in Budapest and is played on special occasions and also some recordings. Just a few words about an instrument that had seen quite a lot in its lifetime. Now, I think a deep analysis and description of the piece bar after bar is not really what our audience is interested in. And it would also take way too much time. So we'll rather just say a few words about different bits and play them for you from different recordings. And, of course, there's a great many of those, I think, well, at least a hundred recordings of the Hamaklavia Sonata that are commercially available. So, let's start with the opening bars of the Hamaklavia Sonata. This fanfare, this heroic proclamation, a series of grand double-dotted chords in the manner of a Baroque overture. The work's wide emotional range is hinted at, however, by the immediate change to a more lyrical tone of utterance, expressed in a much smaller tonal range, leading to a thoughtful pause. Here, in a handful of bars, we've gone from the explosive to the intimate. This was Wilhelm Kempf playing the first bar of the Hamaklavia Sonata on a recording from 1964. An earlier sketch reveals that Beethoven had originally planned the dramatic opening of the sonata as the melody of a birthday greeting for chorus addressed to the Archduke with the Latin words VIVAT VIVAT RUDOLPHUS This phrase becomes the motif of the entire sonata. Here, it is also important to say that Beethoven hardly used metronome markings in his work. However, in the Hamaklavia Sonata, he does. And the tempo he gives in the first movement is quarter equals 138. Unheard of. And virtually impossible. This has been an argument among musicians and musicologists for a very long time. But here are two examples of how the tempo differs in various recordings of the piece. This is just the first few bars, first played by Grigory Sokolov. And now, the same few bars by Mure Pariah. So, some versions say that Beethoven's metronome was broken. Some express other opinions. What it gives us, the audiences, is a great variety of interpretations and artistic vision. And I think this is great. Let's hear a few more moments from the first movement that lasts in different hands between 9 and 14 minutes. Huge difference. Here's the um, final section of the first movement, also played by Mure Pariah. On the first movement, it has been said that it could be a movement of a heroic symphony. The monumental forms of this movement is now only a step away from the monumentalism of Schubert expressed in his C major symphony and the Wanderer fantasy. The latter was composed four years after the Hammerklavier, so very close in time. This being said, the Beethoven Imagery is much more active and willful, but lacks the song-like melodic characteristics of Schubert. As an antidote to the constant striving that precedes it, the second movement, the scherzo, diffuses the mood with humor and brevity and is sometimes called sardonic, It has been compared to the ride taken by Faust and Mephistopheles and seen as an attempt to get out of the fight. It all goes like between dream and reality. It is short and will play the whole movement from a recording of Mitsuko Uchida from 2007. So this was the entire second movement, the Scherzo, from Beethoven's Hammerklavier Sonata, played by Mitsuko Uchida. I really love how she manages these mood and character swings with such ease and makes it sound so natural. The gargantuan slow movement, the Adagio Sostenuto, drifts through a. A haze of harmonic instability. Beethoven marks it appassionato e con molto sentimento, requiring a, an intense emotional connection between the pianist and the score. Here, rather than following a tune, one has the impression of deep stillness, a few moments of flowing but aimless movement, stillness again, and so forth. Beethoven carefully alternates the fuller-sounding sections with passages marked Una Corda, indicating the use of the soft pedal to produce shadowy, distant musical scenes. Although the movement is officially in F-sharp minor, the music wanders through the keys placing the subsidiary idea in D major. This is the key Beethoven generally reserved for religious sentiment. And here it implies the possibility of spiritual enlightenment, even in the most confusing circumstances. This is one of the most impressive slow movements in the entire repertoire. The first bar with its first two notes was added by Beethoven after the score had already been in print and gives an introduction to the first sad song-like theme. From the very beginning, we hear a contrast between the deep emotional lamenting intonations and the brighter bits, thus setting the conflict of the entire movement. So just to give you some idea of the music, here's the beginning and the introduction of the first theme. I, wish I didn't have to pause here. Whew. This was Emil Gilels playing the first bars of the third movement of the Hamaklavia Sonata. And this sounds so devastating, so tragic and sad and full of pathos. It might even be too much. Although, is there really such a thing as too much pathos? I think Current tendencies are to be more preserved and neutral with this music, and also closer to the Beethoven metronome, which is significantly faster than we've just heard. For me, this rendition by Emil Gilles, especially of the slow movement, is a staple. Gilles was supposed to record a full cycle of the Beethoven sonatas for Deutsche Grammophon, but in the late Cold War era, failed to do so, lacking just two or three. He died in 1985, still in his 60s. He delivers one of the slowest performances of the Hamak This is a recording from 1983. And further comes this bit that even deepens the agony and receives sort of a complaining character. This sounds like purely romantic music with an emotional vibration foreseeing Chopin. This was the British pianist Solomon, with some more from the slow movement of Beethoven's Sonata Number 29. This is a recording from the early 1950s, one of the latest recordings we have of the great pianist who suffered a stroke in 1956 and was partially paralyzed and was never able to play again, though he lived until 1988. Now- We could go on and listen to the whole piece, compare interpretations and go through all the modulations and keys the composer offers us, but we have no time for this, so we'll just continue enjoying some snippets, and we're still in the long third movement. But we move forward towards the ending of it, where after a long row of changes, the original theme comes back, reminding us of the permanency of emotion. But here the emotion is warmer due to Beethoven's use of the F-sharp major key, and it sounds almost like a sigh of relief from an aching heart. We've just heard the final part of the third movement of the Hamaklavia Sonata played by the extraordinary Maria Yudina. We have a whole episode dedicated to her, so listen to that if you haven't yet. So this is, of course, not the victory of willpower or the rejoicing of happiness, God forbid, but it is nevertheless no longer this submissive, melancholic fatalism. This is in a way the arrival to a certain nirvana through the rejection of worldly passions. The final movement is set up of a largo, a gradual return to life that slowly pulls fragmentary phrases together before erupting into a dramatic three-voice fugue. This fugue has met great resentment with contemporary critics, calling it unplayable, not even just because of the tempo. It was called odd and ugly. Others, however, thought that it's the coming together of man and God. The movement appeals more to the brain rather than to emotion. At times, the music is dense and angry, When the fugue suddenly turns into a quiet, meditative canon, the contrast is tremendous. Nevertheless, it regains the original momentum, and the movement concludes with an imposing series of grand, resounding chords. Here's the very beginning of the movement. This was Atto Schnabel with the opening of the last movement. And now the very end of the piece. And this was the very end of the sonata, taken from the same recording with Emil Gilels. Beethoven allegedly told his publisher regarding this sonata that here you have a sonata that will be a hard knot to crack. And further, pianists will grit their teeth from it for another 50 years. He was right. It was decades after his death that the de Dazal Errar in Paris in 1836, Franz Liszt performed the sonata in public for the first time, and even that to general incomprehension. I think it is the highly abstract complexity of the last movement that makes this sonata less popular and beloved than many others. The clavier also set a precedent for the length of solo compositions, performances typically taking about 40 to 50 minutes, some even longer. While orchestral works such as symphonies and concertos had often contained movements of 15 to 20 minutes, few single movements in solo literature had a span such as the Hamaklavia's third movement. To finish this episode, I'd like to encourage you to dive into this powerful piece of music and compare a few versions to see what speaks more to your inner feeling. With the recordings of Gilil Solomon and Udina being probably my favorites, there's a great many more to enjoy and compare. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We would be very grateful for likes, shares, comments, and questions. Anything that could make our program better. We will be back with more music soon. And for now, bye-bye.